The Going Up, Going Down podcast is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favorite online betting company. The Bet365 app lets you access pre-match and in-play markets and provides instant match updates across the biggest sports. In the EFL this weekend, you've got fixtures like Nottingham Forest hosting Leeds. You've got Coventry against Bolton. You've got Colchester against Plymouth. Any strong feelings you have about these games, Bet365 has every market imaginable. With Bet365's Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals, cards and more to build your own personalised bet. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple's App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Hello football fans everywhere and welcome to the latest episode, episode 3 of the Going Up, Going Down podcast brought to you by The Athletic. My name is George Ellick and I'm sitting opposite Ali Maxwell, the Paul Pescasolido to my Baroness Karen Brady, (laughs) (laughs) as we look to bring you the very best and the very worst of the English Football League. We'll be looking back at some of the major stories that have happened this week, ahead to the fixtures coming up and of course glancing down memory lane at this week's edition of EFL Rewind. Football fans everywhere I like. I'd be really interested to know the furthest place from where we are right now recording this in the London studio, who the furthest away per listener is. Uh, Please do get in touch at NTT20pod. Look, we are one of many athletic podcasts, all of which are completely free and ad-free versions are available to subscribers of The Athletic. You can be a subscriber of The Athletic. Sign up and get a 40% discount now using the promo code EFLPOD. It's all one word, E-F-L-P-O-D. Yeah, there are a few intriguing fixtures, I think, in the Championship this weekend. Certainly Millwall hosting West Brom on Sunday will be worth a watch. But look, sometimes we'll use the hipster's choice here, but not this week, not in the Championship anyway. Nottingham Forest against Leeds is the late game on Saturday, 5.30 kickoff. And, well, why is it a big game? There's four points between them. Leeds in second, Nottingham Forest in fourth. So a Forest home win leaves one point gap between them and will really change the outlook of this automatic promotion race. Forest have been on good form, 17 points from their last eight games, whereas Leeds have got only eight from their last eight. So you're starting to see how this gap that the top two, Leeds and West Brom, had has started to shrink. For us, it's certainly the XG underachievers taking on the XG overachievers. And there's an I was going to say an interesting tactical battle, but that's partly because all these games involving Leeds I find interesting to watch because of Bielsa's system. I think that for Forest, even as the home team, there's probably only one way to go here. Seed the ball, seed possession, defend deep and compact, try and deal with the crosses that are going to be coming in. Leeds, a lot of attacks down the sides and basically just hope that Leeds continue to to miss the chances that they create. When Forest win the ball, how quickly can they get the ball to Joe Lolly out wide? There will be space out wide with Leeds' fullbacks forming such a key part of their attacking system. Lolly could have space to run into and is so, so dangerous. One of the best in the league 
in that regard. Is there a ball on maybe to Lewis Graben? We know he doesn't need too many chances to score. So uh, a fascinating game. You'd expect that Leeds will play the same as always. Lots of speed and intent to their attacking play and their defensive play, to be honest. Lots of pressing, hounding the opposition. Ideally, they just finish the odd chance. Ideally, they get a goal in the first half an hour. That's when Leeds look like a dominant side. The longer the game stays nil-nil, the more nervous I would say that Leeds will get and the more the Forest fans and their team will feel like they have a chance to, to get a winner. I think as well as Lolly and Graben, key players, all of the Forest defence and their goalkeeper, they have faced a lot of shots this season, Forest, the eighth most in the division and Leeds take the most shots. But against Forest, their opponents convert chances at a lower rate than against any other team. So with that, you can start to see they've got a solid defensive structure in terms of getting bodies between the shooter and the goal. And they've also got a goalkeeper in Samba, who for the most part this season has been a brilliant shot stopper. Fascinating game. Cannot wait to see what happens. It definitely one we'll be talking about early next week, really regardless of the result, George. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say, you know, Lewis Graben is a striker who doesn't need many chances to score. And I think that's correct. He is a, a guy who's prolific season in, season out, and not necessarily for sides who are particularly attacking. And I can't help feel like if you swapped Lewis Graben and Patrick Bamford for these two sides, we'd be talking about a Leeds team who would be far, far ahead of where they are, in, uh, where they are currently. Uh, this is a game that comes probably at quite a bad time for both of them. They both come off the back of two disappointing defeats. On a Saturday, at a time where teams around them are all picking up points, this is the tightest we've seen in the championship so far this season at the top end of the table. Six points separating first to sixth. So you feel like whoever loses this game um, is going to be in trouble. I think we both can agree the way the game's going to go in terms of the actual match itself. We're going to see Leeds dominating. I'm pretty sure we're going to see Leeds creating the best chances. But for whatever reason, it now feels almost uncomfortable to, to think that Leeds are going to turn that dominance mm. into a win. Agreed. Well... That's a game between two teams at the top of the championship. What's, your, what's your prediction? That's what we oh, need to my know. prediction is uh, a Leeds win, a Leeds victory. Uh, I think that I completely agree and it makes me nervous just saying it out loud. But regular listeners to us and to this podcast, they do know how we tend to view football, which is uh, in the long term, the team that create the most chances tend to fare better than the teams they're up against. So uh, for that reason, I suppose more sort of moral reasons, uh, it's a Leeds, <laughs> a narrow Leeds win for me. But again, you, you wouldn't be surprised to, to see Forrest put in uh, a defensive masterclass, which they've done, especially if they can get an early goal. In League One, George, there's also six points between first and sixth. Uh, you've got Ipswich in fourth this weekend, travelling to Sunderland in seventh, just outside that playoff picture. Uh, a big game, though, between... Two of the, the, the league's uh, most underperforming teams, if you take the season as a whole, compared to what we expected from them early on in the campaign. Yeah, and, and similarities to the game you just spoke about with Sunderland coming here off the back of a 2-0 defeat at Fratton Park and Ipswich also losing 4-1 at home to, to Peterborough. So both of these teams come into this licking their wounds a bit um, in a quite a precarious position. As you say, Sunderland are seventh, Ipswich are fourth. Sunderland have a game in hand though on Ipswich, so if they win this game, and then that kind of really fires them back into the promotion mix. And, and I'm not going to talk about Sunderland too much because we spoke about them last week ahead of the Pompey game. Uh, they were lucky to only lose that game 2-0, uh, I have to say. Portsmouth are very impressive indeed. Luco 9 nearly scored the goal of the century uh, at 0-0 with an amazing shot that they hit the, uh, they hit the frame of the goal. But I think the Sunderland fans and for Sunderland and Phil, for, for uh, Phil Parkinson, they can probably draw a line under that one. They just came unstuck against a better team. And, and we know 
what we're going to get with them. They're going to be very solid. They've only lost one of their last 17 games at the Stadium of Light here. So this is going to be a tricky one uh, for Ipswich coming into it. And Ipswich is the team I want to focus on because it is bizarre that they are currently in fourth. <laughs> it is incredible that they were top of the league a couple of weeks ago. If you look at Ipswich fans, and generally the feeling at the club is that they are massively underperforming and that they generally aren't very good. They were beaten by Peterborough um, on Saturday at home, dominated throughout the game, losing that game 4-1. And, and we saw an upturn in performances a couple of weeks ago, which saw them go top, Paul Lambert deploying the overlapping fullbacks, going to the school of Wilder. Overlapping centre-backs. So overlapping centre-backs, the school of Wilder to try and get some performances out of this team. And Chambers and Wolfenden were the two guys who were doing so. But I think the predictability of that was exploited by Peterborough, who enjoyed so much space in that final third with, with the wing-backs and the overlapping centre-backs as well. And maybe the, the surprise that they sprung in doing so has, has worn off and we're now seeing them revert to a mean. Uh, James Norwood, the marquee signing from the summer, he was you know favourite for to be top, top goal scorer in the league at one stage. He hasn't been starting recently. He came off the bench and scored the consolation penalty, so we can assume that he's going to play here. But just in terms, we had a tweet from someone asking us on this podcast to talk about what's going wrong with Ipswich. And I think this is an opportunity to do so because... There, there are kind of shades of Sunderland last season in this team where they're a side who are not playing well, who don't play good football, who definitely have the quality in the squad to be doing much better, but they still find themselves... I mean, if they win this game, the chances are if Wickham drop points, they're going to find themselves in the automatic promotion places. I think Kane Vincent Young's uh, injury early on in the season was a massive uh, hindrance to them. Him as an attacking fullback on the right-hand side or a wing-back even uh, was a key feature of their attacks. Feels like a, a, a size, a side rather with this amount of resource compared to the rest of the league. That is a bit of a cop-out excuse, isn't it? When, when you're when one injury can derail you to that Definitely, extent. But, but the, the interesting thing with that is that I thought, well, if it's one kind of rookie wing-back at this mm. level who's... Mm absence can be so damaging then where are the rest of the creative players and you look at their squad and they have strength and depth the likes of Gwion Edwards John Nolan Alan Judd should all be quality players at this level they've all been in and out of the team and they've all really really struggled to have any impact whatsoever I think Edwards and Nolan don't have an assist between them this season so I think you're looking at the creators as being the reason why this Ipswich team have been so poor they have options up front. Caden Jackson scored a few goals. He's having a better season than what we saw last season in the Championship. Norwood has been okay when he's played. Keane's had a run on the team recently. But I think it's those creative players where they've really struggled. And also in goal, they have an issue where <laughs> Will do. Norris had a you know made a shocking error on Saturday. And he has been in the team for the last, I'd say, eight weeks uh, since Thomas Holy started the season in goal. An Ipswich fan site ran a poll this week saying, who would you like to see start on Saturday? And it was 95% said Holy. <laughs> so I think we're probably going to see a change in goal for, for Saturday. But I, generally, I think as a side, if you don't have an obvious number one, if you don't have a keeper you can rely on, that breeds just uncertainty throughout yeah. the whole team and the defence. So that's an issue as well. I think there's problems all over the park and we're not seeing much from Paul Lambert to suggest that he has really an idea how to sort them out offensively. The The overlapping centre-back uh, switch was something that he obviously saw as a way to try and freshen it up and maybe we'll, we'll see something similar soon. But seems, George, that you're finding it hard to see Ipswich picking up a result here at Sunderland. Yeah, as I say, Sunderland at worst uh, are very, very solid and I, and I struggle to see how Ipswich are going to hurt them here. I think that Sunderland will win this game probably to nil. 
Colchester Plymouth, I think, is the, the game of the weekend in League Two. A similar sort of setup to the last two games in that we've got sixth against third. There's five points between the two sides. And I flagged this one because on Monday's podcast, we mused that it was looking a bit like five teams going for three automatic promotion places in League Two. Now, you did point out that you thought Cheltenham, who are in seventh, are still very much in with a chance. And this is a chance now for the sixth placed Colchester United to put themselves into the conversation to close the gap between Plymouth and themselves. It's Colu's first game since the end of what was quite a bizarre unbeaten run. 16 league games they went without defeat. It was the longest run across the whole EFL this season. But there were so many draws in there, they only picked up 30 points. 30 points from 16 games is not a bad return, but if you're not losing any of them, you'd expect more than that. It's less than two points per game. So generally a team going 16 unbeaten, you'd expect to have got even higher than just the edge of the playoffs. But uh, it was predicated on a, an excellent defence and that's Colu's real strength, I think. They've got some eye-catching, talented players uh, up front in the final third, but Eastman and Prosser, the centre-back duo, I think are probably their real key men for me. They've conceded less than a goal a game this season. Only Cheltenham and Newport have conceded fewer. And even when they do concede, they very rarely concede more than one goal. So in 24 of their 31 league games, it's either been a clean sheet or they've conceded one. So you start to see how Colu haven't been losing many games because generally they only need one goal to at least be in with a, a, a shout of drawing it. They, they come up against an Argyle side that I've spoken far too much about in the last few weeks. But to be fair, it's been justified in the sense that since we flagged up the run that they'd been on, which was going somewhat under the radar because they had had such a poor start to the season. You know, it's clear now that they are clicking. They're probably the best team in the league at the moment. Uh, 12 wins in their last 16 games, 38 points in that time, which is almost 2.4 points per game. It's absolutely immense. Uh, they're decent away from home as well. Only crew have more points per game away from home than Argyle. So it, it's, it's two good teams and I'm looking forward to seeing this matchup, but two very different systems as well. Both managers uh, pretty set in their ways here. McGreal's 4-2-3-1 with Colchester, looking to exploit the flanks with attacking fullbacks, Bramall and Jackson, but also tricky wingers, Senior, Poku, uh, and, and various others. They've got Harriet and Gambin as well. So they're really stacked out wide. And Plymouth's 3-5-2, they are very strong down the left-hand side. So I think the key here is how Colchester's right side deal with Plymouth's threat down the left, where you've got George Cooper, whose delivery with his left foot is sensational, 10 assists in the league this season, but also Danny Mayer, who just really confuses things for opposition defences, just drifting around in those half spaces on the left, uh, a really dangerous player as well. So for me, it's one of those games where I don't see either team dominating. I think simply finishing, taking chances will be the difference. I don't think it'll be a game full of chances. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll go for a draw as a prediction. And to be fair, I think both Colchester and Plymouth would be fairly happy with that. Now it's time for the hot take debate. So far, we had Ali saying that promotion to the Premier League is not a good thing. Frustrating, we had a few people getting in touch saying they agreed. I then last week said I didn't think Bristol City were necessarily a very good side. Frustrating, we had Bristol City fans getting in touch saying they agreed as well. And then, of course, they beat QPR on the road. So not too successful so far. With the latest hot take, here is Ali Maxwell. Something that simply doesn't get spoken about enough. It's the worst sentence 
in EFL discourse is what I'm talking about today. Now, people know that I hate the use of the word momentum around the playoffs, but this is not about momentum. This is the phrase, they're a big club or it's a big club. I think the use of phrases such as, it's a big club, it's a massive club, it's a huge club, should be banned in EFL discourse. And the problem is, for me, you hear it all the time. Why do I hate it? Well, firstly, I don't think it, it really means anything in particular. The definition is questionable at best. And for me, this phrase is, is really the refuge of someone that I don't think has anything interesting to say, someone that doesn't have any proper analysis about the team that they are discussing. To be honest, George, I think the phrase, it's a big club, is complete bollocks, and I hate it, and I want to see it banned. Firstly, the question of what does it mean? Where do you draw the line? Where does a big club become a middle-sized club, and vice versa? There's no accepted definition here and that frustrates me if you ask people directly what makes a big club you get slightly vague and differing noises about fan base often history that rather uh, flimsy concept in footballing terms no one can decide what is and what isn't a big club I asked the 10 people that I respect most on this matter, on all footballing matters, my 10 closest footballing confidants. I'm amazed I got the text now, you said that. <laughs> and I asked them, I asked you and various others, tell me who you think the big clubs in the championship are. Now, these people all know what they're talking about when it comes to football, but the results were hilarious because they're so random, they're so scattered, and everyone, when I asked them to justify it, kind of crumbled and said, well, I thought maybe this, this and this. But... To, to really highlight how different people's perceptions are, one person I asked only sent back one club as being a big club in the Leeds. championship. Leeds United. One person, who I will not name, but might be sitting opposite me, sent me 11 clubs. Correct. Almost half of the division is considered the, a big club. The person who supports the biggest club to ever be in non-league. <laughs> and I just thought that was hilarious. You can see how little consensus there is on this very widely used nonsensical phrase. No one mentioned Huddersfield, who have won three top flight titles in their history. Only two people of the 10 mentioned Blackburn Rovers, who have also won three, including an actual top tier title in the last 25 years. There's probably no surprise that the consensus biggest clubs were Leeds, Nottingham Forest, and Sheffield Wednesday, those three teams haven't been in the Premier League for 16, 21 and 20 years respectively, which I thought was quite interesting. But the worst thing for me is not actually the definition and the confusion within that. It's the phrases you get that accompany mentions of it's a big club. Often you hear too big for this division, as if there isn't already a, a completely meritocratic league system in place, which places teams in divisions based on what they do on the field, based on their sporting performance. That is already in place. But the worst one for me is their fans deserve better or their fans deserve to be back in the Premier League or they don't deserve to be at this level. Um, what, why? What's so special about a set of fans that happens to have let's say, more of themselves. Uh, I think, personally, that Rochdale fans deserve to see their team in the Premier League. I think Leighton Orient fans deserve the absolute world after what they've been through. There's no reason why clubs should deserve to be anywhere other than the league they are in. And there's no reason, definitely, why a set of fans deserve anything just because there's more of them. So 
I think it's a stupid phrase. I think the only reason people use it is when they have no good analysis, basically. They say it because it placates big fan bases. Uh, there's really no risk in saying it because no one gets upset, clearly, apart from me. People love hearing that their club is a big club. So even if it's not true, you're always going to be like, yeah, I like that. That's a good, that's a good pundit. That. I like that guy. Um, but yeah, it doesn't mean anything. And it's never, ever followed with a point that makes me go, yeah, excellent analysis. I feel like I've really learned something here. So that's my, uh, that's my issue. I'm looking forward to spending the next 48 hours going back through every single podcast we've done together to find all the clips of you saying a side is a big club. I don't think I ever have. But, uh, but no, I mean, I have to kind of come back to you a little bit and, and ask the question that surely there is an element to, I mean, it's obviously like a lazy way of, of describing a football team and, and their merits. But if you're looking at like League One at the moment, Sunderland, Portsmouth, Ipswich, these are all teams who, in terms of the realms they are in, in terms of the, you know, the clubs they're rubbing shoulders with are bigger and therefore gravity will kind of naturally move them back towards the top end. I mean, we, we th- there's no doubt in my mind that the clubs we talk about that I just mentioned will eventually get back up purely because of the revenue streams they have compared to other sides, purely because, you know, you mentioned the fans deserve better. That's obviously nonsense. But the fact they have so many fans will in turn make them be playing on a different playing field to, to the others. Is that not a very simple way of just saying the size of that club means that they are underperforming or that they should be doing better. Well, I mean, if only it was always caveated with that, George, because that (laughs) sounds slightly more acceptable. I think another thing that slightly annoys me, and I'm probably guilty of this sort of subconscious bias, is that when there is a club that's recognised as a big club or bigger than the level, I think you think about them differently and I think it's easy almost to analyse them slightly differently. We've just been talking about Ipswich Town. I mean, they're fourth in League One. We've pretty much slagged them off and said we don't like anything about their play. We don't like anything about their form or the last three months. And yet I would still probably say that Wickham and Ipswich are being talked about completely differently, even though they're probably pretty similar clubs uh, in terms of what they are right now at this time, in terms of performance on the pitch. They're probably both quite likely to drop out of the positions that they're in. And yet I think the discourse around it is completely different. And people almost... They're, they're way happier to say Wickham will drop out because, you know, they probably shouldn't be there anyway. But people won't say Ipswich will drop out because they're not very well, good. I guess, I guess that's partly because of the, the wage bill. Like the, the, the funds they have means they shouldn't be together. They shouldn't be on the same amount of points. Wickham should be below them purely based on the amount of money they've spent. I mean, what I do agree with you, and this may be a final point that I kind of hope you're going to come on to, is that people who debate which club is bigger are the are the worst people. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one that, especially because you know if you if you look for this, and certainly like for reference, I'll give the the breakdown of of what people said. Uh, it was actually eight people that I asked. Leeds were referenced eight times out of eight, of course. Forest and Sheffield Wednesday, six times. And then there's a real scattering. Derby and West Brom, four times, even though West Brom have spent 81 of their seasons at the top tier, which is 31 more seasons than Leeds have. Birmingham got three mentions. I feel like that's down to the size of the city more than anything. Fulham got two mentions, which I was surprised about. Stoke as well. Uh, And then Blackburn, who I feel a bit bad about, just the two mentions, Cardiff and QPR with one. I will say that there's one time where I'm happy to allow it. I I can understand it being used, and that's by new players when they join a club looking for an easy win. It's a massive, massive club. It's so funny, mate. I typed into Twitter the phrase, it's a massive club, and here are some examples. Andrew Fisher, when he joined MK Dons last week. Curtis Nelson, about Cardiff, when he joined. David Perkins, when he joined Tranmere. 
Moisa when he joined Bristol City, uh, Chris McCann when he joined Wigan, and also Nicky Maynard when he joined Wigan. You can see what they're doing there. Fine. I understand it. We've all said something nice about someone that we didn't really mean just to curry favour with them. But otherwise, it's nonsense. It's a blight on the EFL and the coverage thereof, and I want to see it banned. Right, it's always a busy news week in the EFL, and we like to pick out a few key news stories from across the three divisions, just in case you've missed them. George, what's been happening this week? Yeah, so this week on Not The Back Pages, we have a managerial appointment in League Two. Stuart McCall is yet again Bradford manager. This seems to happen about every six weeks. This is his (laughs) third spell in charge of the club. Uh, Last time he was there, he took them into the playoff final where they were defeated, But it's actually, you know, if you look, it's been two years since he was sacked after a run of five games without a win. They were sixth in League One when they sacked him. And now they find themselves seventh in League Two. I'm pretty sure they will regret ever getting rid. And it seems like a positive appointment. I think the fans are happy. He knows the club inside out and he certainly knows the challenges that they face. So Stuart McCall, back where he belongs at Bradford. He had a bit of a... Uh, unsuccessful spell at Scunthorpe last season, it must be said. But fingers crossed that they will be a match made in heaven once again. Better call McCall. Better call McCall. That's going to be a new feature where we speak to Stuart McCall every week uh, (laughs) as of next week. And uh, two notable um, new contracts in the EFL that may have gone under the radar. Ronan Curtis has signed a new three-and-a-half-year deal at Portsmouth. He's their top scorer this season so far with 13. And I think even with the new contract, I'm pretty sure, irrespective of whether or not Portsmouth get promoted or not, there will definitely be a queue of clubs looking to take him on. So good for Portsmouth to protect that asset a little bit. And Jed Spence, a breakout star from Jonathan Woodgate's uh, Middlesbrough side, he's signed a new two-and-a-half-year deal as well. The attacking fullback, uh, another one who I'm sure will be on a lot of clubs' wish, li- wish lists. A lot of radars. In the summer, yeah, exactly. I was just going to add uh, an interesting sort of comment piece uh, that John Percy wrote for The Telegraph. It's about the fact that the EFL's profit and sustainability rules, uh, previously known as FFP, are basically causing out-and-out civil war across the championship. Uh, it's something that we've touched on a few times on various different pods. But essentially, clubs are now terrified of spending and the owners are all fighting each other, was a quote from a leading agent who uh, talked to John Percy for this piece. There's basically two sides to the argument here. And, it, you know, it's too, in, it's too complicated really to go into in depth in this segment. But on the one side, you've got teams like Stoke, whose owners are willing and able to cover losses but they're not allowed to make those losses. They think this is limiting the ambition that they have for the club and what they would, I guess, call safe ambition because they don't think there's any risk of it going wrong. But on the other side, 16 of 24 clubs voted against raising the spending limits. Uh, Their point really is uh, summed up by the Millwall CEO who said, we can't have the future of clubs and communities put at risk by unsustainable spending. Having a situation where clubs are allowed to sell their grounds to help them comply with P&S and spend more money on players cannot cannot be good rather for the game. It doesn't make any sense. It's completely illogical. So that's why certain clubs have been complaining to the EFL because they don't think it's fair that they've complied with the rules and others haven't. As for what will happen, we know that Derby and Sheffield Wednesday and Birmingham have ongoing situations with the EFL, but Championship clubs will also be holding a meeting later this month in yet another attempt to thrash out a resolution with the intention of amending the rules before next season. That was an article by John Percy. And next up, it is the In Focus segment where we will take a club 
or a player or a manager or something that's going on in the EFL and look to delve deep into the matters and shine a light on what is going on. So Ali, I think this time you've got a side who've changed look the look of them has changed it's fair to say in the last four weeks or so yeah i'm deep inside the tangerines george <laughs> and that's not because i'm low on vitamin c that's because blackpool fc are the focus this week uh, and there's a few different reasons for it i wanted to give a quick overview of a club that maybe hasn't been spoken about a huge amount this season and that's partly for good reasons Blackpool have been in the news a lot over the last decade, all to do with a really negative situation pertaining to their ownership under the Oyston family. And in the summer, they were freed of the Oystons and new ownership came on board. Simon Sadler, who's a very successful hedge fund manager, born and raised in Blackpool, a lifelong supporter of the club, took over and breathed positivity and everything was looking great. Uh, a reminder that under the Oyston ownership, judgment found that they illegitimately stripped the club of £26.7 million after the club's promotion to the Premier League in 2010. Uh, there'd been a well-observed and well-covered boycott of home matches for years in protest of the ownership. And it was only in 2019 that this finally came to an end. So the whole saga was so draining for fans, but its success offered hope to the likes of Charlton and paved the way for their own positive uh, circumstances over the last few months with their ownership, Coventry as well. Upon taking over the club, Sadler said this is a civic duty. Someone had to step up and become the custodian of this club to make sure that future generations can come here and watch a match like I did with my dad. And that's where I want to start because that is exactly what's happened. The fans came flooding back in a sea of orange positivity or tangerine positivity, I should say. They started this season with a 2-0 win against Bristol Rovers in front of 11,359 fans, which is fantastic. The average has sort of levelled out this season at 9,000. Uh, that's the seventh highest in League One, and it's more than twice the average attendance of two years ago, which was the last full year before Oyston left the club. So off the field, in terms of all the brilliantly intangible and tangible cosmetic stuff around the club, around being a Blackpool fan, around the match day experience and general atmosphere has been really, really positive. It's been a great six months or so or nine months under the new ownership. So that's off the pitch. But what can you tell us about what's going on on the pitch? Mm, yeah, that's kind of where I started with this because... Blackpool started the season really well. They got 12 points from their first six games and they were right up there uh, in the automatic promotion places as we moved into September. Since then, they've got 22 points from their 21 uh, league games, which is essentially relegation form. They've slid down to 15th in the table. And if you look at the underlying numbers that we like to digest, that's more or less where they project to be they haven't won for two months uh, in all competitions in the league they've had five away games in a row which really sums up the ridiculousness of this league one calendar that's been so affected by uh, Berry going out of business and what happened at Bolton earlier on in the season uh, five away games in a row has seen them pick up just one point and as you can imagine for these fans who are so positive about what's happening off the field it is tough because this consistent slide down the table after such a good start has led, obviously, to a, a chunk of the fans wondering if Simon Grayson really is the right man to take the club forward with so much good stuff happening off the pitch. Is he the man to help build them 
on the pitch. Uh, results are poor, as I've mentioned. They're nowhere near challenging, which they started the season doing. And the football as well, to most people's tastes, is pretty ugly. Um, it's fairly one-dimensional. There's not a huge amount of surprises in this team. Pretty direct, a lot of crosses into the box and not a huge amount else. Like Feeney has 10 assists, the right winger, the right wing back. And him crossing to Nondrier to head home has been basically the one theme of their season. It's been a, you know, it's been a, um, a fertile process in that sense. But otherwise, it's pretty grim stuff. In the last game against Oxford, they started with Nondrier and Gary Medine up top. And that kind of tells you what you need to know about the way they are going about things. As such, attendance is dwindling a little bit. Just 7,500 at the home game against Shrewsbury just before Christmas. But... To the credit, I suppose, of the ownership, they've stuck with Simon Grayson. They've not made a change and they've actually backed him big time. The, the, the most interesting thing for me is how active they've been in the transfer market. In the summer, they signed 13 players, which is, is fine for a club that's trying to sort of build a new squad. But they signed 10 players in January alone. And I couldn't believe it. Every day it felt like they were announcing a new signing and it just felt too much for me. They did lose Jordan Thompson, a key midfield player, to Stoke and Curtis Tilt as well to Rotherham. But I couldn't believe how many players they felt they needed to bring in. I feel like it's quite over the top, especially the position they're in where there's no chance they're getting anywhere near promotion. There's very little chance they would ever get relegated given what's happening down at the bottom. I just find it hard to justify this amount of, of January business. They've used the second most players in League One this season. Uh, only Bolton have used more and, and they started the season playing the youth team. So I guess there's a few interesting things surrounding Blackpool at the moment. I'm just looking specifically at the recruitment, the buying of players and so many of them. And fans are saying this is an example of incredible ambition from Simon Sadler, the new owner, a willingness to spend more money on players because he's a fan and he wants the best for the club. But that just makes me a little bit uneasy. I don't think that's the best way of going about things. There are a few other owners in the EFL who are fans of the club they own, who have been very ambitious in terms of money they've put in, and it hasn't translated into success on the field because you have to be a little smarter than that. So I'm delighted at how they're doing and how they've moved on from the Oyston regime. But I think objectively analysing how the team is doing and how it's developing, I'm a little bit puzzled at how they're approaching things at the moment recruitment-wise. And Simon Grayson is under a lot of pressure. I need to see a lot more from this team before I'm convinced that they are on the way up anytime soon. Okay, time for the fan focus segment. Each week we get in touch, try and tap into uh, a section of fans from a club across the EFL and we want to really take their temperature. We want to see how they're feeling about the situation that the club finds themselves in. This week, George, West Bromwich Albion, top of the championship, but it's not all plain sailing for Baggies fans at the moment. Yeah, interesting time to get in touch given that they uh, have gone top of the championship having got their first win in eight uh, last time out against Luton. So we tweeted saying, West Brom fans, get in touch ahead of going up, going down this week. Are you confident that Slavin Bilic and this squad will convert this position into a promotion? What are the keys to making sure that they do? And we had lots of responses, both uh, in DMs and in tweets. And are they confident? What are the keys, George, to securing this promotion? I think it's fair to say 
nods to the issues while still maintaining confidence. Hamish Coley said, I think we'll go up purely down to the failings of the other contenders. Getting Pereira and Diangana back in the team and firing is going to be key. Defences can handle just one of them, but when they are both playing, it's almost unstoppable. Grant Harrison says data took an upturn against Cardiff as well. So that's two games in a row where it's all looked a bit better. Addition of Callum Robinson looks to have helped massively already, and I'm sure Grisitsky will as well. Takes some of the pressure off Matt Phillips and means we don't have to rush Grady Diangana back. Still some concerns over Hulpe up front. But there's a lot of promising options in that in that front four. Midfield is one area of concern with Jake and Sawyers. That's Jake Livermore looking leggy. And that seems to be a bit of a theme here, which is something that certainly as an outsider looking in, I didn't expect. Tommy Farr, for example, says far too easy to play against. No challenge to underperforming Livermore and Sawyers midfield, which lacks energy, uninspiring options in nine roll, but plenty of quality behind them. Need Dangana fit ASAP. He is the key man. Other frailties, hopefully enough to see us over the line. They've not always looked that good defensively either. No, I know. I mean, but I mean, we, you and I are, are, are big fans of Romain Sawyer. So to see him being pinpointed as one of the issues here is a shock. And Leo Messi, not that one. I think his name is actually Leo Watkins. He DM'd us to say, uh, in love with the squad this year after outing those Premier League egos and old timers from last season. But it's Bilic himself who holds the key. He has that Klopp-esque quality. High praise indeed. Everyone trusts in him. I wonder if West Ham fans agree. Uh, the dip in form at the start of December is mainly down to teams working out, particularly Pereira, who routinely has one, two or even three men marking him and roughing him up all game. Our main issue, though, is Livermore, who's been outstanding, and Sawyers are being often being overrun as a midfield two, and as one or both of our fullbacks bomb on, they're often sprinting back to cover. So... And there's been you know, plenty of other comments, lots of positive comments about Semi J too and about Carl Bartley. So there seems to be a confidence in the defence, a bit of a concern that teams are working out Pereira, a need for um, Pereira, sorry, for, for Diangana to come back from injury, a some faith in Slavon Bilic. Not too many mentions of the strikers, which is a bit of a surprise given yeah. that you think that, that they should be getting a few more goals. But it seems to be Livermore and Sawyers who are bearing the brunt of the blame for that poor run. And maybe that's something to look out for in, in the coming weeks. A return to form for them could see them through. Interestingly, given that the general consensus from fans seems to be that they should have enough to go up. If you take out those comments, reading this back, it doesn't seem wholly positive to me. And I would say that having seen the opinions of fans, I'm a little bit more concerned than I would have been beforehand. That's why this is such a, a valuable segment for us to really understand how the fans are feeling, but also a couple of interesting points always come out of it. And uh, thank you to all of the West Brom fans who got in touch with us and offered their views. It's much appreciated. And hopefully you've picked up something from that segment as well, the, the thoughts of your fellow fans and the thoughts of George Ellick there. Uh, I want to know, George, what you've got for me for EFL Rewind. It's the highlight of my week since we started this Going Up, Going Down podcast. I enjoyed my first dig at storytelling last week, talking about Jermaine Defoe's loan to Bournemouth back in 2000. And I've no idea what you've come up with this week, but I cannot wait. Here we go. So I'm taking you back to the summer of 2003. Oh, what a summer. Portsmouth have just finished top of the old Division 1. They got 98 points, scoring 97 goals in 46 games. Colin Lee was Walsall manager, and he took a look at that and thought, do you know what? I want a bit of that. So he went and signed Dion Burton and Gary O'Neill and Jamie Vincent on loan and secured the permanent signing of Paul Merson. Ooh. We're going to be talking about Paul Merson's spell at Walsall. Wow. 
interestingly also Chris Baird came in on loan from Southampton there which must have been quite awkward for him um, but Merson arrives obviously having scored 12 goals in a, in a fantastic Portsmouth team being a mainstay there and this was a huge huge coup for Walsall picking up a player who undoubtedly was one of England's finest most talented players even if he never really fulfilled that potential in the top flight what stage is he at now what what state is he is he proper twilight or is he still he's got proper, a bit he's proper twilight you, okay. l- you look at the, he's not in great condition let's say that um, but the the season gets, I mean, Walsall finished 17th the season before in the old Division 1, which is, you know, pretty decent for them. I think they'd had three or four seasons in that league. Punching above their weight, it's fair to say. Colin Lee, the manager. First game he has as a player at Walsall, they beat local rivals, West Bromwich Albion, 4-1. Merson scores twice. <laughs> this is absolutely, you know, extraordinary stuff. Halcyon days for Walsall fans. Spoke to Matt Vale, who's a, who's a listener of, a, of Not Top 20 podcast, who's a Walsall fan. He says it's pretty much his happiest memory as a Walsall fan was that game. Amazing. Beating the local rivals, the big team down the road 4-1 and deserving to do so as well. Merson continues to make a brilliant start to life at the Bescott. He scores in the, in the uh, what was, well, I don't know what it was, the League Cup uh, as probably the Coca-Cola Cup back then against, against Carlisle. He scores again in his fourth game as a draw and stay unbeaten against Stoke. So he scores four in his first four. Then it all gets a little bit tough for Merce. And I think it's important to say here that Paul Merson had some difficult some difficulties at this time. He had difficulties with gambling addiction, uh, difficulties with, with alcoholism as well. And this the point of this segment is not to laugh at Paul Merson for these. We're just telling a story about what was an absolutely bonkers time for Walsall. So he plays in a 3-2 defeat at Stoke on January the 31st. Results have started to dip by then. And then he has to go to Arizona to a clinic to treat his gambling addiction mid-season. I may have forgotten to mention early on that Vinnie Samways was another player that Colin Lee brought in in that summer from Sevilla, the first Englishman to play in uh, in the Seville derby against Real Betis. And he, him and Merson are the kind of the key men, but suddenly Merson's away and on March the 6th in a nil-nil draw at Upton Park against West Ham, Samways comes off in the 70th minute and goes on strike, never, never to be seen again. Merson returns from Arizona on the 13th of March, comes off the bench in a 1-0 home win against Wimbledon. By this stage, Walsall are starting to, well, they're fending off relegation and Colin Lee uh, is approached by Plymouth for the manager's job there and he goes and has a conversation and the Walsall uh, owner decides that is not good enough. and He sacks Colin Lee with four games to go of the season, then needing two wins to stay up. Who do you turn to in this situation? Surely you don't turn to Paul Merson, who's just come back from rehab in Arizona, who's got no coaching experience whatsoever. Surely you don't turn to him to be your next permanent manager. Merson gets appointed. Four games to go, Merson gets appointed. And his first game is away at Carrow Road against Norwich. And they need two wins to stay up. They lose 5-0. Merson starts three strikers up top in a pretty naive performance. He brings himself on. They, ne- they lose the next two games. Merson apparently puts in an incredible performance on, on final day of the season against Rotherham. They win the game 3-2, but it's too little too late and they get relegated. Merson gets given the permanent job now. The next season, they start off, it's the 2004-2005 season. Their first four games, they beat Port Vale 3-2, they draw two all at Bournemouth, they lose 5-3 at Oldham, and they draw two all at home to Barnsley. In Amazing. four games, they score 10 goals, concede 11, a teenage Matty Fry at scoring 4-4 four four at the time as nice. well. He used 44 players that season, <laughs> Paul Merson. He was there for the whole season, used 44 players. Was knocked out in the FA Cup away at Slough Town. Every time it looked like Merce was on the edge and was going to lose his job, they would go on these mazy runs where they would win five games in a row, scoring goals, playing brilliant football, and the fans would be back on side. 
So they come, I think they come 17th in that season. So lower, lower half of the, of the division. And they go into the 2005-2006 season. He brings in his friend and former teammate, Aston Villa, Steve Staunton, to be his player assistant manager. Within Smart s- move. Within seven games. I know, back into January, Staunton is poached to be manager of the Ireland team. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which, is, which is pretty bonkers. Also, he... Well-trodden he, path, that. Walsall assistant to uh, Republic of Ireland manager. And, uh, and, and, and Merson has a couple of difficulties where Matty Fry, the key man, he, he, he does bring through as a teenager, sold to Leicester. Julian Bennett is sold to Forrest as well. And in February, with a club looking likely to be relegated, Merson is sacked. They were relegated at the end of that season as well. But a couple of interesting kind of nuggets that I was looking at at his period in charge. Scott Dan, he gave his uh, debut to age 17. Nice. A product of the Warsaw Youth System. I asked Matt Vale, like, is this a sign that, that Merson had, um, you know, was, was someone who could spot a talent? He said, absolutely not. He refused to play him and loaned him out um, when uh, when all the fans wanted him there. So that was just basically luck of the draw. But you look at the low knees that he brought in, presumably l- using his contacts in the game. Andrew Sermon came in, aged 18, from Southampton. Paul McShane came in, aged 18, from Manchester United. Danny Fox came in as well from Everton. Uh, John Ruddy for, from, from Everton as well. So right. he used his contacts bringing bring good youngsters. And the of man course, that launched a thousand careers. And he even waded into non-league and bought James Constable, age 21, from Chippenham Town. Amazing. Steve Claridge was another one who came in uh, as a former teenager in, in the twilight uh, days of his career. But interestingly as well, there was a 4-4-2 interview with him about a year later um, where they were asking him about, his, um, about whether or not he enjoyed his experience as Warsaw manager. And Merson says... I wouldn't give it another go, no. If you've got no money and can't buy players, it really is very hard. And the Walsall fans haven't got a clue. I'm not being disrespectful, but I think that, but they think they should be somewhere they ain't, the championship. They've only been there three times in 100 years, and if you haven't got money, beggars can't be choosers. You're going somewhere they're going to lump the ball about, and I don't believe in that. And I now know how George Graham felt when he had to worry about me every day. Being a player is much easier. He went on after that to play for his friend Mark Cooper at Tamworth, where he played one game, sat on the bench to see them lose 5-0 to Grays, then immediately announced his retirement after the game. So it was a sad swan song for Paul Merson, but just the Merce that we know now from our TV screens, it just, I find it incredible that 15 years ago, Paul Merson was managing a League One side and, you know, had some, had some times of some success and brought through some interesting players as well. Brilliant, George. Thank you for that. Excellently told. And what a story as well. That's it this week from the Going Up, Going Down podcast brought to you by The Athletic. And hopefully you've subscribed on the feed so that you get every episode. There's also tons of other podcasts available from The Athletic on all good podcast platforms. But they are available ad-free on the site, on the Athletic app as well. If you haven't signed up to The Athletic and you'd like to give it a go, it's clearly not just podcasts. In fact, the array of football writing is absolutely incredible as well. You can get a 40% discount now and support this podcast by using the promo code EFLPOD, all one word, E-F-L-P-O-D. All the podcasts completely free and ad-free versions available to Athletic subscribers. A nice bonus as well, you get to read an article that George wrote earlier this week about Shandon Baptiste and Tarek Fossu and what Brentford can expect from those two players. We'll be back again next week, so make sure you're subscribed. This has been the Going Up, Going Down podcast. Thank you as ever for listening.